I'm Adam Banerjee, and this is The Motivation Mike. I'm here today with Kat Wolf. She's a comedian who was invited to the exclusive Writer's Lab at the Groundlings. She works as a freelance writer who wrote a feature screenplay. Catch Kat in the classic movie, Step Brothers yelling, Mangina! How was that for you? <laughs> that intro or hearing you yell, Mangina? Yeah, both. Oh, it was excellent for me. It was great. You really nailed that line. Thank you. I'm just here fishing for compliments all day. That's cool. <laughs> yeah, no, how, um, are you talking about being on Step Brothers? How was that for me? Yeah, how was that for you? It was It was so fun. I don't even think I appreciated it at the time. I was a featured extra or background actor, as, as uh, they're more formally called. And You I got... are so ungrateful. <laughs> I'm grateful now, though, because now I realize that might have been my my peak, being oh. <laughs> uh, on a set with Will Ferrell, and and I didn't know how funny the movie would be. You know what the I mean? The movie was so good. I love it so much. Yeah. Oh my god. But I do. You do have to pause to find me in it. But I'm in there. Yeah. But you had a line. <laughs> yeah. I mean, a lot of people don't get that far. Yeah. Yeah. I was. Uh, yeah. I had a line. And it was a very special line. I guess so, yeah. And, and the funny thing is we didn't know. Obviously, we don't see the whole script, so we don't know why we're chanting that. But, you know, you just trust it and just go with it. <laughs> <laughs> Acting 101. Okay, I love that. I love that. Trust and go with it. The mangina line. So did you make that up or did they tell you to yell that specifically? They That was in the script. But I was chanting it with other people. So yeah. I didn't have like a solo line, but yeah, they, that's what they told us to do. Yeah. Just chant. Brennan has a mangina and Brennan <laughs> was Will Ferrell's character. <laughs> but if my memory serves me correctly, you could hear, we could hear you way louder than anyone else. Uh, yeah. I guess maybe I've, uh, I've diminished my role in this movie. Maybe. I don't know. I, I haven't actually watched it back in quite a while. So oh. I should. I should get that clip onto a reel. Yeah, that'd be hilarious. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, thanks for appreciating my my role in that. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. <laughs> so you got there and it's just like it, it feels like a typical day of like what being an extra. And then and then they're like, oh, actually, you're also going to do this. And that was kind of exciting, I imagine. I was a featured extra. So I had like a wardrobe fitting before the day and hair and makeup when I got there. Damn. So I was, you know, I didn't have a trailer, but uh, so then, yeah, so I, I don't remember if we knew we would have a line or not, but um, the director just told everyone, all right, this is what you guys are going to chant. Brennan has a mangina. Everybody got that? We were like, all right, <laughs> that's it. <laughs> Oh my God, that's pretty wild. But I mean, cool experience. Were you like uh, actively auditioning as well at that time or? Um, that was right outside of college pretty much. So I don't, I was just trying to find my path and I didn't really know where to start. So I remember just finding background acting through central casting and I was also doing stand-up. That also felt like a way I could get on stage without having to get cast in anything. Stand-up, you don't really have to audition. You just kind of start showing up and you get better and better and you start making friends and they start offering you spots on their stand-up shows. And, you know, you j I just kind of started working my way up through those ranks and wish I could say I had done more auditioning, but I never quite figured out where to find those 
those opportunities, you know? Oh, well, that's really cool that you started out doing stand up too. Cause I feel like, yeah, it's nice to not have to wait for people to give you opportunities. And also just like, it takes a specific type of person to want to do that. And I'm curious, like what gave you the guts when you were like so early starting out to like get up there? You're like, I'm going to do this. You know, what, what was it for you? Stand up definitely started for me in college. I took a lot of improv classes. I got my degree in English and theater. So I spent a lot of time taking improv classes just for fun, even in the theater department. And I remember one day I was there for improv, but the teacher, there was a student teacher who also was helping teach the class. And he was like, hey, if anyone wants to learn how to do stand up, come next door. And I remember thinking, what? You can learn that? And at the time, all I knew about stand-up was those bits at the beginning of Seinfeld, where Jerry Seinfeld is on stage in a comedy club. And that was always my favorite part of that sitcom. I was like, I just like this first part where he's just telling jokes on stage. (laughs) And so when I found out you can be taught how to do that, I was like, yeah. So this teacher actually talked me through writing my first set list. And I was like, is this crazy? Like, I'm just going to go up on a stage and talk about like my Canadian mom and make fun of her. And he was like, yep, go ahead. And there's this coffee shop and you can do an open mic. So a bunch of my friends were there and they thought it was like the funniest they'd ever seen me. They were like, oh my God, that was amazing. And I just, from there, I just kind of was like, all right, I'll keep doing it then. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, when else in life is someone going to give you the space for like five or six minutes to rant about your life and everyone has to shut up. (laughs) I mean, that's crazy. Sometimes they don't shut up. (laughs) Sometimes they don't. True. And you got to address that. Right. But, um, it's, it's a pretty wild experience. I think like when you start getting into it and when you said that it made me think is improv the gateway drug to stand up. (laughs) Um, possibly I think for me, it was just having one person say, Even if you don't know how to do this, you can learn. Um, But for me, I don't know. Stand-up went back to being the gateway drug for improv, though. Because after years of doing stand-up, I was like, ah, I'm ready to just get back on stage in a more liberating way where I don't actually have to plan these jokes or Mm -hmm. try and wrestle these ideas to the ground. So I don't know. It could probably go either way. Yeah, (laughs) that makes sense. It's interesting. I feel like a lot of people that have never done stand up or improv. Well, let me speak to specifically stand up. I feel like people think it's just all about um, like you're funny or you're not funny or, um, you know, how funny are you? You know, but it's also like authenticity, who you are as a person, finding that and also taking people on this trip. Right. Like with you, because you could have a certain joke that hits but it can't hit earlier on. It has to hit later on. You like if you have a particular type of audience, like you got to brace them for your heavier material. Sometimes you can't come in with the you know like you know we were talking about earlier like the suicide material. You can't start out with that in certain rooms, right? Because people are gonna be like, "Why is this dude talking about that? Why is she addressing this at the top?" Yeah, interesting. I once made a joke about it was such a stupid joke. But I just had this this set up punchline joke where I was I said something about 
I went to a funeral. None of this was true. None of it. <laughs> but I just wanted to set up this dumb joke where I was like, I went to a funeral and it was an open casket and it was so gross because the guy was wearing polyester or something <laughs> stupid, some dumb switch joke. But the, the audience went quiet and someone later told me like, oh, this guy's mom just died. And all his friends around him were feeling bad and awkward about that just this funeral joke. Right. And so I was like, oh, okay, maybe I shouldn't even joke about funerals anymore, you know? I mean, usually that joke gets a laugh just because it's a switch format. But I don't know. There's some heavy material that I think I just, in that moment, chose to stay away from. That wasn't even that heavy. I mean, like I said, it was just a stupid joke. But Coincidence, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Like, for me, they teach us, like, groundlings, too, you know, you, you've been at Groundlings with me, you know this, but there are certain topics and certain places you should never go on stage because you'll tip the audience to a certain level of darkness or awkwardness, and it's hard to get them back. You know, you never heard an, an animal on stage, even though it's a totally imaginary animal. There's some things that the audience just doesn't want to deal with in, in comedy. It's too sad. So I don't know. But yeah, I think to what you're saying, too, you've got to read the room, right? Introduce yourself the way you would whenever you're meeting someone new too. You wouldn't like meet someone new at an interview or a party and be like, hey, let me tell you my deepest, darkest secret. You'd be like, hey, I'm so-and-so. Here's my, here's who I am. And ask maybe ask them some questions too, which you can also do with an audience, right? Through crowd work. Yeah, it's interesting too, how sometimes comics, when they know they're gonna go darker, They'll be like, buckle up or just get ready. It's it's all going downhill from here. You know, I like I like that for some reason. I just think that, you know, when they kind of acknowledge the fact that people might not be ready, but they're still making the choice to go there. I think it's like, OK, you know, they're, they're still reading the room in their way. Right. Yeah. Like knowing based on this room, do they need to be told to buckle up even if they don't <laughs> seem ready by saying it? You've brought it out into the room. It's so awkward when a comedian just barrels through, right? Yes. Like I've I've heard this advice or learned this advice that you've got to let them know you're in the same room as them. So if it seems like people are shifting in their seats, you want to just at least be like, well, it's happening. These are the jokes, you know, we're going forward. I think that is enough, yeah, to diffuse what could be, you know, maybe uncomfortable for them. Yeah, it's like when someone's in their own world on stage and they're totally disconnected from the room, it's extremely uncomfortable. It's just like, oh, we're just going to keep doing this thing. Oh, no. Because, I mean, sometimes you could be doing material that worked in other places and maybe that room, those people aren't feeling that. You know, like what works in L.A. isn't going to work in, I don't know, Kentucky, right? Yeah, so. yeah, totally. So I guess it's just a matter of seeing how they how they respond or sometimes, you know, you can't win them all. <laughs> if this is you and these aren't your people, then, you know, you can kind of just finish up professionally and thank them and get off the stage. That's too. true. That's true. But yeah, you're right. I mean, you can definitely pick your material based on sometimes. I think that was what I like missed about improv, too, was being able to kind of make mid-course corrections and I think if I 
I, I, I still love stand-up. I haven't done it in a while, but if I did go back to it right now, I would know to keep the roster of jokes ready, but not be so so stubborn in the set list. Tied to it. Yeah. Yeah, because I think, I love your point. It's like when a comedian is totally tied to it and won't deviate, it's almost like, uh, it's almost like they're, to themselves, they're like, it's, it has to work. It, it worked before, it has to work. It's gonna, it's gonna eventually work, right? Right? And it's just like, that's, I think that's what's uncomfortable about it. Yeah, like it has to be dynamic. It has to be in real time. You know, you're you're speaking directly to the audience in stand-up. There's no fourth wall, as in theater, you know, the, for the listeners who aren't familiar with that term, the fourth wall is that imaginary wall that, that blocks off the rest of your imaginary setting on stage and the audience is just watching and they're not involved. But in stand-up, they're the ones you are talking to and their laughter or lack of it or heckling is their response. It's a back and forth, you know? And if you lose that, you lose them. It's like earlier when we were talking about how motivational is this mic? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, you know, it's like every other sentence. If I was like, yeah, and what's motivating about when you're working with the audience and like da-da-da, right? Or yeah, how was how motivating was it to be on set and to have that experience? Like it's just like, why am I, like, why force this, you know, motivating thing? I don't know. Like, you know, a part of, a part of being motivated too is like, you, you gotta, you gotta experience the downside, right? Nobody's always motivated. Yeah, totally. If you started asking me how motivating were these things, I'd be like, oh, actually, I don't know why I'm still doing this. <laughs> I'd be like, it was not motivating at all. But yeah, I think you get when you, I mean, you asked like what, drew me to stand up. I think when you're someone like us who's drawn to perform and drawn to the stage, you're more uncomfortable in the audience than on the stage. You just wish you could be up there. So you just get enough success. Or you just get enough of a laugh that you're like, oh, that was fun. That was great. And you really do feel like you're giving them something too. When, I mean, it sounds so trite, but it just takes one person from the audience to come up after the show and say, thank you so much. That was so funny or that was so fun. That's really motivating enough. So then you're like, okay, I really liked how that felt. I really liked the idea that I can lighten someone's day. So you hold on to that little seed and then you're like all the bombing and all the things you're like, how can I work through that? And how can I challenge myself then to, to know what I did wrong or know what I could do better. And then you just can't wait to go out there and do it next time. Shout out to Paul Moomjean at Flappers. I mean, one thing he told me was that it's cathartic for the audience to watch stand-up comedians because obviously none of us have it all together, right? Like we all have something fucked up about us, <laughs> something imperfect, right? And it's like, in society, it's like a lot of us are trying to, sh to have the, a little bit of that mask, you know, and like stand up is like, well, fuck the mask. This is me. And um, people are like, oh, yeah, it's me, too. You know, and it's it's moving for people, I think. And I think, like you said, you know, I have those memories to people coming up after a show and just really wanting to express something that they really enjoyed or liked about it or moved them. And, yeah, that could keep you going for another six months. Yeah, yeah. You realize like you're not in a vacuum. 
You're not creating alone. You're not doing this only for yourself. Yeah, you're doing it for the audience. And that brings us back to the point of like, why to be honest on stage? Because it's completely cathartic for the audience to see you revealing your imperfections and then and finding humor in it. But it's so uncomfortable for them if you're up there not being honest or not being authentic, right? They can just sense that you're stiff or you're glossing over what's happening in the room or whatever it may be. So it's a, another good reason to just be relaxed and be, you know, be yourself. Yeah. And I think for people that are starting out in comedy, it's like just getting up just getting up getting up getting up you know that's really what's going to help that if you start to feel like i'm stiff i'm inauthentic i'm trying so hard and they don't like it you know uh just keep getting up just don't stop you know that's really what it's about because you can't you can't just get up like once a week once every two weeks and just reflect on what happened a few weeks ago and then try to bring that and correct it like on stage again. I mean, you can try that. I mean, it's not going to be totally negative or something, but you're not going to get as much bang for your buck than if you're in front of people all the time working out your stuff. Yeah. And I think a lot of people, even in all professional fields have, of course, really intense stage fright or anxiety going in front of people so you're right yeah you can just dispel some of that by getting out there and if you're feeling the urge to do it though i i think once you're out there you'll feel good once you do hit that stage i've read that somewhere that in in performance anxiety before you get on a stage you'll be feeling it and then truly though so much of it goes away as soon as you hit that stage Right. I mean, a lot of it is just anticipating and overthinking what could go wrong or how do I want this to go. But I think if you let go of that control, yeah, and you just get out there, you'll find your pace and find your rhythm. Yeah. And it's an interesting contrast to improv, too, because it's like when you're doing big characters and stuff. We're switching gears here for a second. <laughs> yeah, you know I want to go but go to improv. That's yeah, yeah, yeah. my new fave. <laughs> so with Groundlings characters, right, it's like, you know, that's not necessarily, I mean, it is you on stage, but say you're playing your uncle, your aunt. I mean, it's an experience maybe you've had with them or, or something that makes you more able to, you know, bring out this person on stage. But it is it is different, right? Because you know you wouldn't necessarily bring a Groundlings character to stand up in the same way. You might actually be able to bring it into stand up, but it wouldn't be. It's not a one man show, totally like a play or something, you know. So you wouldn't just be like doing that character for five minutes. That'd be weird. Um, but in Groundlings, you know, with improv, it, it works because it's like a different medium in a sense, right? Yeah, it's what the audience is expecting. They're expecting you to play someone different. I don't know. Now that you mention that, though, I'm trying to think of comedians stand-up comedians who might have a really big persona it might not be them at all or a lot of them say like Richard Jenny said once um that he's just a really amplified version of himself but I yeah I guess and Jim Gaffigan comes to mind I mean it's almost like they have found one tone right like an exaggerated point of view that they do have of the world but it's not all of them. It's honestly and authentically them, but it's just seeing the world through that one 
view that they have that maybe they think is the funniest or the the strangest or whatever. Right. I think maybe Dice Clay is like that. Yeah. Except they say, this is what I've heard, and I, I guess it could make sense. He's kind of transformed into that characterized version of himself from doing it so much, you know, like the outfits, the glasses, you know, like I think I've heard that's him, you know, in real life. I mean, I can't say I have met the guy, but, uh, you know, when he started out, I think he was trying to find like, what is this character I'm kind of building? And I would guess it started out with something real. You know, it probably started with, I, I think like this about people and let me try to fine tune that and really lean into that. Yeah, I th- feel like Andrew Dice Clay started with maybe some anger yeah. <laughs> or something. Yeah, and then, you know, you do have your comedians who, who do voices. And I, I think if I think that I could use my Groundlings experience now to make my stand-up a little more colorful and vibrant. I don't know. When I say colorful, I just mean it could be maybe more varied. Maybe it's not just me on stage. Maybe I could do more act-outs where I set up the joke and then I go into a voice and character to set the scene, you know? It's it's interesting to think about the all the different ways that you can even approach your stage persona. That makes me think of Robin Williams. I yeah. mean, he's a good example of someone who could do so many different characters, but then can also be so authentic as himself and marry that. Yeah, yeah. Do you think you did see him in that? I mean, a punctuated between the characters maybe, right? I do think so, yeah. Yeah. I mean, Robin Williams, I mean, wow, just such a legend. I mean, his level of vulnerability on stage, even though he's doing such, he was doing such big characters sometimes and it was so extreme and so big at times, yeah, his vulnerability still shined through. You You could get a sense of there's something deeper underneath this rather than just something big. Yeah, like it was almost like the characters he was doing were to express himself, right? Like they were, it almost seemed like voices in his head and he was just letting them out. (laughs) Right, right, right. It's pretty wild. Have you ever seen the movie One Hour Photo? Robin Williams? Oh, it's so trippy. It's a it's a dramatic film, and um, basically the premise, without any spoilers, I mean the movie's been out for like twenty five years. I don't know the movie's been out for a long time, so you haven't seen it. I guess it's fair to give you a spoiler at this point, but I won't because I'm a nice guy. I'm nice. Uh, you know the premise is basically this guy who uh, Robin Williams plays him, who's uh, he works at you know when Rite Aid and CVS had those. Uh, photo developing, right? Like you could come in, get your photos developed. You know, this is like, oh, yeah. oh I people know. People don't even know about this anymore. Oh, I do. It's, it's so weird. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, this ancient technology. <laughs> so, you know, Robin Williams' character, like he would, he was basically just a creep. You know, he was, he seemed nice in front of the guests, people that would come in and want their photos developed. But there was just this thing about him where he would just like, get really into like imagining how his life could be part of theirs as he was developing them. And it was, it was so eerie coming from Robin Williams. I mean, just something about him because yeah, it's usually like his vulnerability was also contrasted with, like you said, like that vibrant, uh, those vibrant act outs and stuff. And this, it was very settled in, and just like, it was just so subtle and 
these pregnant pauses in his look that he would give people. And I mean, I'll never forget that movie. Interesting. Yeah. All right. I'll have to give it a watch. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for the wreck from yeah. 25 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> no doubt. No doubt. Yeah. I think you would enjoy that one. Yeah. No, it sounds interesting to see that difference because, yeah, it's just the actor's personal style or the comedian's personal style that determines how they'll let it out and how much they'll let out of what's really going on in their inner world. Yeah. You know, so it's interesting to see that even Robin Williams, he's not automatically that loud, fast-talking guy. He he had to maybe find that and cultivate it. Otherwise, he could have been the one-hour photo guy forever. Like, <laughs> oh, yeah, Robin Williams, that subtle, dramatic actor. That would be so crazy. <laughs> but, yeah, I remember in his stand-up specials how he would get up and just, like, go into the audience, start messing with people and stuff. I was like, wow, this guy is just so wild. I just loved the spontaneity. Yeah, and that's, I think, why I love improv, because I think what I used to worry about in stand-up, and of course, worry is never good for being funny, <laughs> but I used to always just think, oh, are these jokes funny enough? Oh, do I have them memorized? What set am I going to do? Okay, I'm going to, I've got to, okay, I've got this joke, then this joke, then this joke. Okay, I've got to remember all this, but in improv, it's just so freeing. You just go out there and you're like, yep, I've got nothing, got nothing. I'm just going to deal with that, and you've got to be in the moment. And then I realized with improv too, another angle that helped me a lot was, especially at Groundlings, you're trying to get through the levels, you're trying to pass at each level. You can't help but be self-reflective a little bit up there because you feel like you're being judged and you kind of are. But really, it's just so much more fun when you can go out there and be like, all right, this isn't a test of how good I can be at improv. It's a game. The audience is going to give us something and that's what we're going to use as a jumping off point for this game, you know, and it's just so fun to be like, we've got nothing. You're going to give us something and we're going to co-create right now. Yeah. Hell yeah. And I mean, you're up there, you have a partner too, which is yeah. kind of fun, you know, like just you and this person, like living in this world and you're doing your thing, you know, and you get yep. to kind of like escape for a second, uh, which is, is a lot of fun. Yeah. I think that's another thing I like co-creating. I think I got lonely in stand-up. Yeah, I had a bunch of friends that I'd see at all the shows all the time, but we didn't really get together and write much. We just kind of showed up with our own stuff we worked on, and we'd give each other notes and stuff. But, yeah, it's really fun creating in the moment with someone. Yeah, I think for me, like, I have ADHD, and just doing this stuff, I mean, it just uh, it just feeds uh, – well, I'm trying to think, like, what is the relationship now? I don't know. That's my ADHD. Uh I feel like doing characters and all this is just so, you know, I like that I can just go into that other side of my brain where I'm trying things out and just seeing where it goes and being spontaneous. And um, I like, for example, I could never do a desk job. You know, my psychologist says how I imagine a desk job to be. I'm like, I don't imagine it. I had internships. Okay. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I just feel like it's this creative path where you get to express yourself and just be that, you know, wild part of your imagination, especially, you know, like you said, with improv, sometimes you can bring that into stand up too, though. And, um, it's very cathartic. I mean, a lot of comedians joke at open mics and stuff about, you know, stand up being free therapy, <laughs> which I don't know if it's always the best mentality, right? Therapy's therapy. Um, but it, but it is, there is something to be said for that. Like it is cathartic for us too 
to get up there and talk about experiences we've had and for people to just understand who we are and what our experience is. It's like, I exist. Yeah. And I think, yeah, when you bring that up, yeah, you could co-create with the audience too. You could do crowd work. Somebody says or does something and you just riff on that for a while or imitate them or use your imagination <laughs> to, you know, I'm, I'm not That's mean. That's destroying actor. I'm not mean. <laughs> you could imitate them. <laughs> I mean, yeah, if you need a character idea or (laughs) the audience can't necessarily see who's in the front row, you can help them out. That's great. That's great. Although it it doesn't (laughs) always work with hecklers. I've, I've tried to enjoy hecklers as uh, someone eager in the audience who's just trying to join the conversation, but it doesn't always work. Sometimes I, I was at a sports bar once. This is, I've performed at so many different places. I used to go to this sports bar and they'd have all these TVs behind the right, performer. Right, so you're battling that pretty yeah. much. Oh, yeah, and there are people playing pool. They didn't turn off the TVs this one show even, so whatever. You know, but those are the challenges as a stand-up comedian. You're like, all right, if I can do this room, I can do anything. So, but there's this one table talking so loudly. They didn't even know there was a show going on. It was just kind of this big room. And I was like, oh, I'm going to I'm gonna handle these hecklers right now. <laughs> so I, they were that. just talking to each other. They were getting louder than me. But I was like, I have the mic. So I was like, oh, hey, excuse me, folks. You know, hey, w- wow, sounds pretty interesting over there. They didn't even hear me. They just, they didn't even. So I was like, all right, that did not work at all. Yeah. But, you know, what I've learned about stand-up, what to do in that moment is, you know, if something obvious is happening, call it out. If that doesn't work... Just go back to talking to the people who are listening. You know, you don't focus your attention on the ones who aren't. You just stay, you just look right at the people who are and they're still enjoying. And then you hope that the laughs will just increase enough that the people over there will notice. I remember I did this 10-minute set in Atlanta and there was a group of 10 people directly in front of the stage and it was a group of nudists. They're all nudists. That came. They were nude at the time? They weren't allowed to be new to this okay. bar. <laughs> so you got to call that out. That'd be pretty wild. Yeah, you have to you know, say something about that. You know that public speaking trick everyone says? Like, if you're nervous, just picture everyone in their underwear. Right. Notice they don't say picture everyone butt ass naked, yeah. though. I don't think the underwear thing works anyway. It's always kind of like, wait, some perv made that up. Right. <laughs> Someone was like, oh, that makes me feel so much better. Right. What is the utility <laughs> of this exactly? Yeah. Uh, now it's weird. But yeah, these nudists... I mean, they were they were just getting way too excited. I mean, they weren't trying to be hecklers. I think that they were nice people, but they were just like, you know, they laugh at a joke, but then they would have they would have to comment. They would have to say something, you know, so I'm like, you know, you obviously want this to be about you. So what's up? Tell me about your day, you know, and, uh, you know, it it didn't become a negative thing. It became kind of like them riffing with me and uh you know, it, it, it got kind of interesting for people because it's like people don't really know about this world of nudists. I mean, I don't really know too much about this world of nudists. So I was honestly selfishly curious. Uh, so, yeah, that was honestly kind of fun. It doesn't always work out that positively, though. Um, you know, I remember one time at a, a dive bar uh, and, you know, this like devil worshiping hot girl in the front. Like she was just like I would say like self-deprecating stuff. And uh, she would just 
like be agreeing with it. <laughs> She'd be like, yeah, that is true. We don't expect you to be hot, you know? So it just kind of became a little bit of me versus her. And I was just like ripping her on looking like a devil worshiper and like how I'm a Christian boy. Um, but yeah, it was just like, I guess that's kind of an example where I didn't really want that to become the set, but it's like, you know, if this girl's going to be like giving me shit while I'm saying self-deprecating stuff, you know, I've got to, I've got to do something with it. Yeah. Yeah. If you try and gloss over it, you lose the audience because they'll be like, oh, clearly he isn't hearing her or, you know, if you try and, or you sound like an angry librarian, excuse <laughs> me, I'll, I will wait. I'll wait till you're finished. You know, you don't want to be like this school marm either. Who's like, excuse me, I'm up here. You're down there. Then it's like, that's, oh. yeah, that's everyone's just though. awkwardly trying to be quiet and they won't laugh because they think, yeah. you want, you know. That's really funny though. Like I could see that working if it was like kind of uh, someone who was doing it kind of ironically. You yeah. know, that might be funny, but not like on purpose as like that's that's their tactic that they always do. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Just wrestle the audience to submission. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you are not nice. I'm going to continue now. Thank you very much. Yeah. <laughs> Shut up and now listen to my jokes and laugh. <laughs> I like these two versions of these characters. <laughs> yeah. One's very passive aggressive and then one's just very aggressive. One's just angry. <laughs> <laughs> All different ways. But it's interesting, you know, because as we're talking, it's obvious that these experiences have made an impression on us. Yeah. I mean, we, rec- we remember like specific details. <laughs> <laughs> so you're also in a cult. Yes. The, the Groundlings cult. Oh, yeah, so you're not in like one of these Heaven's Gate things or something? No, I've been trying to get into Scientology, but a lot of a lot of red tape. Oh, jeez. Really? That's crazy. I guess cuz the red tape is money. You got to like pay and pay to go higher, right? Yeah, yeah, I guess I don't know. I, I think I might be the only reject. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that'd be pretty bad to be rejected from Scientology. <laughs> yeah, it was really bad, okay? Shut up. <laughs> Yeah, I'm just bullying you on this podcast. That's so bad. That's so bad. No, and I don't mean to call Groundlings a cult. Uh, I think I was just just uh, thinking, you know, like-minded people, though. We are definitely all of one mindset. It's comedy, but it's so interesting, isn't it? How different everyone can be. No age. backtracking. Play the tape. She called Groundlings a cult. Play the tape. Play the tape. <laughs> And I got kicked out the next day. <laughs> yeah, they haven't hit me up about Writer's Lab. I don't <laughs> <Yeah>. know. <laughs> it's a good cult. It's a good cult. It is. Yeah, cults yeah. can be good, right? Now yeah. you're saying cults are good. Yeah, Now I they're going to kick you out for saying cults are good. A lot of things are, I don't know, a lot of things are culty, right? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Now that you mention it. <laughs> like, I feel kind of culty when I shop at Trader Joe's. <laughs> How about you? I've never thought about that with Trader Joe's because it's not my one and only. I do a lot of Costco. Oh, Costco you're cult. exclusive. Yeah, I like pay to join. Yeah, uh, see? So that's a cult. See, Scientology didn't let me pay to join, but Costco did. That's a cult. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so like are you buying like big screen TVs and discount jeans? Like what are you oh, buying? Yeah. I do like my normal grocery shopping there. <laughs> By like a giant bag of spinach. Damn. Yeah. And then the, the challenge is to finish it before yeah. it goes bad. Wow. Adult do. problems. Yeah. First world adult problems for <laughs> sure. Yeah. I mean, you probably get like 30 packs of socks. Like what else? What else? 
Yeah, you know, I used to do comedy and now I just buy socks. You yeah. Know? Uh, what else do I buy? You really want to know? More Costco stuff? Uh, lots of fruits and vegetables, honestly. Sometimes um, a roasted chicken. Yeah, and this is this is like a chicken that probably lived in a cage. Ugh, you're right. Shame on you. Ugh, no. I shouldn't. I shouldn't. I won't do it ever. It's all right. Again. I mean, now it's dead, so. Wow, you just went dark again. <laughs> you just went really dark. I mean, it's it's better to be dead than like in a cage your whole life, right? Wow. I don't know. Ooh, I don't know. I don't know. That's a very good existential question. Yeah. That to was live like, in a cage or not. That is like, could be applied to comedy. Is it better to be in a cage on stage or <laughs> bomb and never go on stage again? <laughs> yeah. These are very existential questions. Well, you know yeah. what Jerry Seinfeld says about nervousness before performing how, you know, the, the statistic that, most people fear public speaking more than death. So Jerry Seinfeld has said that means most people at a, a funeral would rather be in the coffin than doing the eulogy. Yeah. So I guess you're right. Most people would rather be a dead chicken than a caged chicken. Probably. So the logic pans out. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty <laughs> wild to think about. I feel like Jerry Seinfeld is like, the Jesus Christ of comedy. Like he's just OG. He's probably one of, I mean, he is definitely one of the best, you know, he's arguably the best. People have their opinions about that. Uh, my favorite comedian of all time is Dave Chappelle, but like Jerry Seinfeld for me is like very close. How about yeah. I for feel you? like he's like the stand up King. Yeah. He's, yeah. I mean, he basically coined the phrase, what's the deal with? And that sums up so much of stand-up. You can start any joke with, what's the deal with couches? What's the deal with pools? Whatever, you can pick a thing and just riff off that. Based on that line, what's the deal with? It's like challenging the normalcy of it, turning the idea on its head, whatever. Yeah, I feel like he may be one of the pioneers of that style. of. I guess people call it observational, and a lot of you know, my humor has been in line with that. But yeah, he does it the best for sure. That style. So you brought up him speaking on, you know, public speaking and all this. So you have taught public speaking or do you still teach it right now? I have. It's one of my many side jobs. Had an opportunity to teach public speaking to adults. Um, I've, I've actually guest lectured for some university courses and um, taught classes separately. It was really interesting because I basically just said, I've, I have all this stage experience. Here's what I've learned. I can share these tips for any, you know, any presentation or speech or whatever. And it's really interesting to me how terribly frightened these successful business people are just of speaking in front of anyone. Like they tell me the list of things that they feel before they go on stage and they're like yeah my my face turns red i can't breathe my stomach hurts i'm sweaty i'm shaky i mean it sounds like these people have severe medical conditions and they don't it's literally just what public speaking makes them feel so i've had a really interesting time just coaching people through that and then revealing it's so revealing of 
just how scared people really are. It's crazy because I, you know, you and me were we're drawn to the stage. We want to be there. We're comfortable on there. But I mean, I still get nervous before shows, though. Do you? Do you still get anxiety? Yeah, I still I still get nerves. I just try to use it more, and I think uh, like each time it's just like less and less. You know, like yesterday going out, I was like, I didn't even know what I was going to talk about, and I felt fine with that, which is kind of new for me. Usually. If I don't know, like if I don't have a pretty clear idea of what I'm going to say, like relatively, I'm like, oh, this is this could go weird. Like, I don't know. But yeah, it's one of the first times where I was like, yeah, we'll just see what happens. And I felt at ease. So, yeah. Yeah. Interesting. And Jay Leno talks about taking command, too. He has an analogy about how the comedian is like um, an animal trainer. And how if you go out and the audience is the animal. And if you go out there and you're like, oh, hey, um, uh, how's it going? He says they'll eat you alive because they can sense your fear and they can sense your hesitation and they're done with you. But if you take charge, you know, then you are in charge. Jerry Seinfeld has a really good interview on this, too. If you ever get a chance to check it out, you can look it up on YouTube. I could try to send you a link, too. But yeah, he um, his metaphor is war. He's like, it's it's war up there. It's like you versus the audience, you know, and and it's bloody, you know. And he's like, and if, if you could you could be killed, it feels like you could be killed, even though it's you know it's a metaphor. But it was really interesting to me that that was Jerry Seinfeld's metaphor, because you know I don't imagine him to be like you know he's not very dark and. Um, yeah, for him to describe comedy that way is saying something. I was like, "Oh shit." That was inspiring to me though, cuz I remember when I was first when I was first starting out, it felt like that. Like even, I mean, it still does, but it's like back then especially, I was like struggling more finding my voice, finding my own comfort level on stage. Like when I first started, I remember like I just like I would just like look around weirdly or I would just be walking for no reason, like just pacing, just trying to get out the nerves, you know? And it was just like the audience versus me and like, I'm losing this battle. Please God help me. So that, that metaphor was helpful for me to be like, okay, this, this is kind of normal to feel this way and to learn how to grapple with this. Yeah. Interesting. And that is interesting to hear him use that analogy because his biggest weapon is like observations. Yeah. So he must really ramp up the way he expresses them. You know what I mean? So if he's like, what's the deal with airline peanuts? He's seeing the audience as the enemy, I guess. And he's having to really fight to win them over. He'll probably deliver it in a more passionate way. You can't just go up there and be like, airline peanuts are weird, right? Like yeah, he's got. Yeah. So instead, he's got that's where his intonation comes from, because, yeah, people say, oh, Jerry Seinfeld, the clean comedian. But he is very opinionated. If you really listen to what he's saying and how he's saying it, he has strong opinions about these things and he's not afraid to tell you them. Yeah. And it's just clean because of the topics he's choosing. He's he could easily do what's the deal with strip clubs, you know, but he's just not going there. Yeah. Yeah. He's clean, but he's not any less hard hitting right right right. but that's another interesting thing about stand-up too is that it gives the illusion that it's conversational when a lot of times it's polished planned written out and then even 
you know, Jerry Seinfeld might seem casual on stage, but he is really bringing his full energy behind it. Or any comedian we could point to. Even, again, I go back to Jim Gaffigan. He's just another one of my favorites. Another clean comedian. But I feel like his humor is so pointed and so funny. And he's another, he's a good example of bringing in a voice or a character. You know, the lady he does, the lady in the audience. It's like the voice you imagine that someone might be thinking. Oh, yeah. So he'll be like, well, I don't like this at all. (laughs) You know, he'll do a joke about bacon and another joke about bacon. And then that lady, he'll do her voice and be like, is he going to be joking about bacon this whole time? (laughs) And I love the way he brings in that variety too but he's just talking about bacon right (laughs) right yeah he's very like self-aware and probably comes from those early experiences too like dealing with people uh, you know people might even just be talking you might even they might not be heckling you but they might just be like you know they're saying something about oh is he gonna talk about bacon again you know and as the comedian maybe he's heard that (laughs) i don't know but good point yeah maybe that was a heckler but he's on a bigger stage now and when you're filming specials you really don't do as much crowd work if at all so you want to keep it tight you know keep it filming but yeah maybe he's just doing back the voices that hecklers used to do or that you're you're like you said like he's imagining this is probably what they're they would be whispering about or what they're thinking and i think that's a really powerful tool if you can express what the audience is thinking or feeling that's how you connect with them yeah yeah 110 percent. so it's interesting to me like you're so educated and then you're with us at the bottom doing stand up. <laughs> no. <laughs> so, so tell me a little bit about like what motivated you um, to get all this education to get your masters. I'm, I'm curious. A lot of it was just uh, not knowing what to do next. I think that could be a theme of of my post college years. Is what should I do next? Where should I be putting my energy? A lot of times, the answer for me has been school. So I went back and got my master's in English literature and creative writing. It was mostly creative nonfiction, but um, I was ready to just dive back into reading and writing and have someone force me to do it. In a sense, I, I wanted to, I just can devour books and it taught me to read even faster. So I like when someone's like, read Jane Eyre in three days. And it's like, okay, and then we'll discuss it. So I liked that challenge and I was hoping and maybe it worked that the that the writing to continue strengthening my skill as a writer um, would either strengthen me as a writer or lend some credibility that I could use in the workplace. I was able to start freelance writing from that and it's a it's not something I've had to use professionally because I'm not a university professor or anything like that, but you know, it has opened up doors for me even the screenplay that I wrote, my writing partner assumed I was good enough to help her write it. She's not a writer, but she had an idea. And she assumed I was good enough just because I have a master's degree. So Yeah, think, but that's credibility. Yeah, thank you. That's probably what motivated me to go back was feeling like, okay, if I don't have a Netflix special and I haven't really don't have any TV credits except for Step Brothers and my one film credit, what else can I do to stay busy, challenge myself, get better, and, you know, have something to show for it? Yeah. So are you able to share with us a little bit about the screenplay or is that under wraps? Because I know you're Yeah, I can. Stuff. Yeah, I have been um, 
pitching it. I, my, my, my writing partner and I, to this day, will never know if someone stole our idea because we saw a movie come out that was so much like it. We actually looked up when this film went into development because we were like, we sent it out so much that we were like, did someone take this and just change it enough? So I won't speak about it too much because I am trying to negotiate a, a deal right now to sell it. I've, I'm pretty close, but it's been such an interesting experience. I really didn't know screenwriting at all. I was completely self-taught, but having someone who had a story to tell and then having her work collaboratively with me to get this scene out, then this scene, then these characters, and Groundlings helped too with developing characters and knowing their different voices. But really, the interesting part of the process was learning how do I even format this? I got final draft and just had to push myself to read other screenplays and figure out how does the language sound and how does it move and how does the story come out in this format? Um, so we, we've gotten it sent out to a lot of people. We both had connections we could send it to. And I think the most interesting part about the process has been how long it takes or how many puzzle pieces there are. So even some people who liked it still said, you know, call me when you get an A-list name attached or call me when you have funding or call me when you have a director so it's been the learning process for me though was really about the creative process telling a story in this format and revising over and over and over again and one one of my proudest moments with it aside from the fact that we're really close to selling it but you know nothing's really done until the contract is signed so I'm I'm probably overly optimistic saying that's going to happen until it does but one thing was one um, executive we sent it to said, well, comedy's hard. I mean, I wouldn't advise comedy because it's an action comedy. But he read it and he was like, oh, I laughed. I laughed a lot. So I was like, yes. But my writing partner was like, well, slow down. I know you love comedy, but that might not be what this story's meant to be. Um, I'll just give you a little background about the story. She had an experience where she went to Mexico and she was staying in this beautiful house that her her father-in-law had helped build. He invested in and everything. And she said it was like a Corona ad. I mean, that reference used to mean just Corona beer, but I, I might specify Corona the beer. And she said, though, then they found out all this backstory that had happened with this house and with the construction of it and this business partner of her father-in-law's and all these all these shady people who had come in and out and she didn't know. And she found out like the first night they were there. So she said she slept with a knife, like a kitchen knife under her bed because she was so freaked out. She was like, what if these people come back or are we in danger? So she loved this um, juxtaposition between this beautiful vacation house and the danger that could be there. So our movie's about, you know, people who go and rent a vacation house and have dangers there. But um, she really was was more insistent that we focus on the danger and the crime and all this stuff. But I was like, but I've got to make it funny. I don't know how to do this otherwise. And we did. We found those funny moments. We found humor in our characters and their reactions to the danger. And and so, again, I was really, I was really proud that we were able to lift it up in that way and, and make it punctuated by humor. But I don't know that... 
it's hard to even answer the question about the journey of where it's been. There have been so many, it's been a few years already and you know, it's been weird. Is there any challenge you had in the moment where say you were pitching to someone in person and they gave you like a tough question or something that like kind of took you off guard for a second and then you grappled with it? Uh, it's been mostly more sending it out by email and then maybe we get a phone call with some notes or we get written notes. So I, I, we haven't really been in a pitch room at a studio or anything like that. We've been going through personal contacts and things like that. So I can't say there have been any questions that have thrown me off guard, but I definitely, the most powerful thing about it was having a completed project. I actually, with my freelance writing and all of this, I've gone back to waiting tables in the past year. I went back to a place that my friend is the GM and she offered me this like one or two days a week. So it's been fun and I was realizing, oh, I actually really like being around people and serving's been fun again, but I actually have met producers there who come into the restaurant and when they say, and when I can work into the conversation, I'm a writer and then they go, okay, send me something. I'm like, yes, I will send you something because I have something. Yeah. And before this screenplay, you know, I didn't, didn't have anything I could send. So it's actually opened up some more doors for me there too. I sent it to one producer who now, who asked me, he was like, well, I need something that you wrote alone, not with a partner. Can you send me some sketches? So I quickly, you know, threw together a few sketches thanks to my sketch writing experience on from groundlings and from there he's now considering me to write on a tv show so you Hell know yeah. just waiting for funding so it's been really interesting so i wouldn't say it's been about as much of the pitching and interviewing process it's been more just having that finished product people can get a sense of who you are as a writer your voice as a writer and then it opens up all these other avenues so it's it started out being, we need to sell this screenplay to, all right, I could just use it too to open up other jobs. Yeah, well, you're not shy. And that's good because it's like in these different opportunities you've had, you've found ways to, oh, I can bring this up or mention in that mention that without it being super heavy handed. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but you do. You do have to find a way to bring it up. Otherwise, I'm only serving that guy coffee, you know? Right. And Right. And it's like, you know, your potential. So it's like you're trying to realize that potential now. Right. It's yeah. like, how can I translate this thing into that? Yeah. And it's so crazy. L.A. is so interesting because you don't know who's a producer or a director by looking at them. I mean, so you just have to be friendly, get into conversation, you know, and then hope that it comes up. Otherwise, I mean, it's kind of such a cliche thing. Oh, the barista who sells a script at Starbucks, but it's like, that's the dream. Yeah, that, that would work for me. Right, right. Yeah, <laughs> it can happen, but you've got to do the stuff you're doing, right? It's like people sometimes think of that cliche in terms of I'll be discovered at a cafe or whatever. You know, it's like just sitting there, probably not. Like you've got to find ways to network and build relationships, all of that, you know, and confidently communicate like you do. Like, that's so important to it, right? Yeah, and I think even, like I said, having the screenplay done and finished made it easier to speak up in those situations because I do have something I can send. I mean, 
maybe it's foolish to think we could sell our first ever screenplay too. My writing partner and I were like, do people even ever sell their first? But at this point, with all the revisions, it feels like the 50th. Like we rewrote this thing wow. so many times, you know? Yeah. So I've done some writing and uh, that's been like the challenge for me too. Like if I'm writing like a pilot or something like that, like if, if a story point, if I want to change something from earlier on and then it's like everything has to change sometimes according to that. And I'm like, okay, so what do I do now? Do I rewrite like this whole, this whole second half or what? Yeah. It's crazy. The domino effect. That's what I would do next. I'm already working on a couple more things now, but I've learned start with the treatment or start with the outline because you can mess around with the details all you want without throwing everything else off later. You know? Yeah. Yeah. That would exactly. Be, yeah. Next time. Now I know I could write one faster. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That's yeah. cool. So where can people find you on social media, email, wherever you feel cozy, letting people know that you're at? Yeah. So um, I'm on Instagram. I'm not very active on social media these days. Do you, do you always feel like you should be? I always feel like I should be, but you can find me um, on Instagram at Cat Wolf. That's cat with a C, two T's and two F's at Cat Wolf. Um, I'm also on Twitter, but now that Elon owns it, I'm not into it anymore. <laughs> you can find me on there, but I'm not posting. Um, yeah, all everywhere online, LinkedIn, everywhere. I'm at Cat Wolf. Okay. Yeah. No, I get that. There's like kind of a pressure to like be into social media all the time and stuff. But yeah, I mean, it is what it is for each person, right? Like I still feel like I could be, you know, posting more and all that, but I just have other focuses right now, but I communicate a lot on social media. Yeah. Same. And I'm, I'm available on there. I love, you know, interacting with people. I also have an account on there called um, performer advice where I post just quotes and, things that I've picked up along the way that I think are helpful. So that's another good place if any of your listeners want more little bite-sized pieces of wisdom. Because I, I still read a lot. I'm I'm still such a comedy nerd. I love reading about comedy and I like sharing that so that I can, you know, save you some time. <laughs> yes, yeah, study this woman. She will teach you. All right. Well, appreciate you coming through. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Adam. 